Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Jacko Jack and The Trouble with Angels from his superb new album, Secrets and Lies. This is the first of two podcasts because uh, there's so much to cover with Jacko and so many bands and projects he's worked with. Welcome, Jacko. Good evening or whatever time we're meant to be. (laughs) Any time of the day for, for those listening. So, yeah, okay. we, we played The Trouble with Angels. Listening to that album, it does seem to cover so many different topics and themes. Um, do you want to tell me about that track in particular? Yeah, that was inspired by a real-life event, which tied in with an earlier real-life event. And I guess it's the idea that uh, we... Crimson were playing in uh, Monte Carlo, and uh, we were playing in this extraordinary, opulent theatre that's attached to the infamous casino there. And um, at the end of one of the shows, one of the guys in the band, his wife had flown over. She said to me, are you, uh, are you busy afterwards? And I said, no, I'm just going back to the hotel. And she said, well, maybe you might be able to uh, help me out. So a friend of mine is here and um, we're, all, we're going to go out with her. And um, she's had a pretty rough time. And I said, oh, okay, well, is she here on holiday? And she said, well, she's actually here on her honeymoon. But her husband died before... They could take advantage of it, but she came anyway. And so she bigged me up as a kind of uh, anecdote teller and uh, cheery soul. So I met this woman who was lovely and we kind of chatted and I think we swapped emails at the end because of some thing I'd mentioned that she wanted to hear. And then we, uh, I, I think I wrote to her, we wrote to each other a couple of times. And then I remember writing to her on Christmas Day thinking, oh God, that's going to be a nightmare Christmas Day, you know. And we, we exchanged a lot of emails and then it kind of stopped. And then she got on with her life and she got married again to somebody else. And then I spoke to her ages afterwards and, and she said that I'd, be, I'd been like this guardian angel. I'd come out of nowhere and got her through this very difficult time. And it reminded me of something that happened to me. I found my real mother uh, in my early 20s. And uh, she was an Irish woman, quite, uh, quite a well-known singer in the, in the 50s and her. A big Irish show band. Um, but she found herself living in a place called Bearden, Arkansas, which is in the middle of nowhere, really. Wow. And I flew out to see her uh, on this uh, occasion. And I got kind of weird, cold feet halfway across. And it's quite a complicated journey. It's You can't fly direct to there. So you go Heathrow to Boston, Boston to St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, and then St. Louis down to Little Rock. And I had a bit of a meltdown <laughs> in the middle of it um waiting for a connecting flight and this woman i'd never met before came over could see i was in some kind of distress and just chatted to me and was absolutely brilliant and so it sparked off this idea of you know somebody appearing out of nowhere and then kind of disappearing uh, at a a particularly difficult moment in time and that that in itself reminded me of a movie by vim vendors from the 80s called wings of desire where uh, this black and white movie is set in Berlin and these angels are atop these huge buildings and they swoop down when someone's going through a, 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 an existential crisis or about to commit suicide or whatever. And then one of them falls in love with this circus performer and then gives up his angel status and becomes mortal. So that's really, that, the song's about that. Sorry, it's a rather long-winded uh, explanation, but that's, that's what the song is about in essence. When you have a track like that, do you start with that lyrical theme and then the music is inspired from that or some, or is it sometimes vice versa? Yeah, well, it can be any number of things, uh, particularly on this record and, uh, and writing for Crimson. It's all sorts of different, uh, different ways. That particular tune, the general idea was in my head and then I had that title and then, then you mess around. That was one where I did mess around, kind of wrote it on a keyboard and um, uh, sometimes it happens... Uh, you know, with a degree of synchronicity. And other times you've got music that you put stuff onto. Other times you start with something and the, and the lyric can suggest a, a melodic thing or a, certainly a phrasing thing, how the notes are phrased. So, yeah, there's no strict way, you know, and, and, and sometimes when you can't write anything, you invent some kind of musical, some kind of cryptic musical game in order to generate something. Because there's nothing worse than a blank piece of paper or the audio equivalent, you know, I think get something down because you can always erase it and you can always rub those words out. Yeah. They're, they're not set in stone. So. And how does the sort of 
writing process compare with Crimson? Because I know, I know that there's at least one track that you worked on with, with Robert on, on the new album. Um, well, Robert doesn't really, he doesn't really dictate what the song might be about uh, beyond, I know he came up with the title, it's his title, um, Uncertain Times is his title. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, we, we are in the midst of that. The, the lyric of that song specifically was, again, was a, was a very specific personal thing that happened. As we often do on, on this podcast, we take a deeper dive into the artist's career. And this podcast goes through um, a sort of 10, 15 year period here from the late 70s to, towards the early 90s now. We get to one of, I'm not sure it was one of your first bands, because I think you'd been in a, a few bands, but one of the first bands where you'd done quite a bit of recording um, and that was 64 Spoons and the track uh, Plunder On. Yeah, I, I prior to that, at the age of 16, I had a band, it was my first proper band really, Yeah. Um, which I'd formed with a fellow guitar player who's, who's quite a few years older than me. And we were called Soon After and we were a five piece and we entered the Belly Jamaica National Rock Folk Competition, which was kind of a uh, a mid-70s hip version of the X Factor, I guess. But um, huh. uh, we'd entered this competition, but by the time the heat arrived, in my arrogant youth, I'd pissed everybody off uh, in the band so much that they, they'd all left apart from the other guitarist. And we couldn't do it as a duo. You had to have a minimum of three people to qualify as a group. And I met a trumpet player in a record shop who was around the same age as me and invited him to rehearsal. And we rehearsed for a few weeks, and then we went and did this heat and uh, all the other local bands were there and they were all very, they were semi-pro or, or pro. They, they did covers and they, they were very competent and experienced and they were doing Doobie Brothers numbers or Steely Dan numbers. And we went on uh, with the unlikely lineup of two screaming lead guitars and a trumpet playing this avant-garde nonsense that I'd written. And bizarrely, we won that heat. <laughs> and then we won the next heat and then we won the semi-final and we ended up at the final at the Roundhouse and that's when things started, really. I, we got management, we came third, started doing gigs. By the following year, I joined another band and thought, well, we'll, we'll enter the competition, we'll win that as well, you know. I, 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 and we didn't. The first heat I went to, I saw the name on the board and I thought, I've got to see them. It's a band called 64 Spoons. <laughs> and, um, and they were amazing. And so I ended up joining them. I kind of forced myself upon them because they were all really talented guys. The, the, the lineup that, that's on that recording, uh, three of the guys are, were all in top college, music colleges, the, the, the Royal School uh, and the Royal Academy. And the trumpet player, which was the guy that I was in the other band with, had been in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And we started, yeah, gigging and we, we did all the pub circuit up and down the country. And uh, the recording that we're going to play, we put out retrospectively this one album, um, but the, the track we're going to play was recorded um, by this lovely man called Nick Griffiths, who was an engineer who saw us in a pub and thought we were great and invited us down to his studio. It just happened that his studio was Britannia Row because he worked for the Pink Floyd. Um, so that's where that was recorded. And I mean, I guess I was about 19 when we made this. And, you know, we were this rather bunch of smart asses playing in pubs and clubs at the time of punk. So we were, the, uh, we were that, double, um, that double hit, you know, the wrong band at the wrong time. Uh, I do tell this story of um, having spent all of those years, uh, you know, eschewing uh, any kind of social life in order to get better and better at my instrument and practice and, and absorb. And, and then finally, we're starting to get somewhere with this band and we're starting to headline gigs. And I remember we, we headlined a show at the University College Union. The support band was one of these newfangled punk groups that we'd read about, but we'd never actually seen one. <laughs> so um, I'm on stage and I'm plugged into my amp and I'm playing away and trying to get levels. And, and I suddenly become aware of somebody standing much too close to me. And I turn around and there's this guy with a cliched, so he looked like a, a spiky, uh, a, a mine, a yellow mine, you know, and he was staring straight at me and he was talking to his mate, but he was trying to intimidate me. So he was talking to his mate but looking straight at me. And uh, he said to his mate, he said, here, get this skeezer. And his mate said, what? He said, he can play the guitar really well. What a wanker. At that moment, the, uh, the very thing I'd been working so hard on over those years suddenly appeared to have no currency whatsoever. So um, that, was, uh, that was 64 Spoons. <laughs> Thank you. 
having babies They scream and stop sleeping at night at home You have one and you're crazy You'll get caught dead Next thing you'll have a mortgage Hung round you like a white tide around your neck Saving up to buy carpet Three big sweets and have them wet in tonight must be so difficult where you've got such a, a certainly at that time such a shifting uh, musical climate and the next track that we go on to is one of your solo records released as Jacko tell me where to run to was it difficult getting a solo deal well the trajectory was 64 spoons uh, we went to see a band called National Health do you remember National Health with Dave Stewart oh right yeah yeah people player Dave Stewart it was yeah. the band he had after Hatfield and the North right and Bill Bruford was playing drums with them and we went to see them and a girl I knew was going out, uh, was, her cousin was going out with Dave Stewart. So we managed to get backstage and I gave Stuart, Dave Stewart a, a cassette of my band and bless him, he was very tolerant and very supportive. And later on he came to see us and he brought Bill, Bill Bruford with him. And, and then he did, um, he did a single, he did this cover version of What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. And he mm. asked me to sing on it, which I did originally. Uh, and then Colin Bluntstone became a possibility, and I uh, obviously I got rejected to uh, to an also ran, and but it was a hit. But I I ended up working with Dave, and we did loads of um, TV shows and promotion, and the record was a hit. And then he put a band together, uh, and we toured, and that was with Pit Pile from from the Hatfields, and it was a mixture of Hatfields music and new music Dave had written, and some new things that I'd written. And uh, Dave's girlfriend at the time knew a guy at Chiswick Records, and um, he gave me a record deal. So there I was, I must have been, so I was about 21 and I got this record deal and suddenly I was like a kid in a candy store, you know, uh, I had a budget, I had a, you know, a studio to work in. It was, it was brilliant and I loved mucking about and trying different things and uh, so that's where that comes from, yeah. <laughs> that album never came out, it was uh, released on 
Chiswick Records, but Chiswick Records kind of went under. Uh, and that was the start of a, a repeated pattern where uh, uh, I then made at least two more solo albums that didn't come out. a bit of a tie in terms of the, the next track with uh, Peter Blegvad um, How Beautiful You Are so was, was Dave Stewart involved with that as well? Yeah well Dave Stewart was uh, because I knew Dave and, and saw a lot of him then and Dave produced the next record deal I got was with Stiff Records and it was because I played Dave a demo of a song I'd written and he said I really like this uh, why don't I act as a production company so he paid for it and um, and produced this song which we then that's what got me the deal with, with Stiff Records. Um, but in the midst of that, he was also producing Peter Blakevad. And I was aware of Peter Blakevad because he, he had been in Henry Cow uh, briefly yeah. uh, when his other band, Slap Happier, they joined forces. Pete's very fond of saying he was fired from Henry Cow for being too flippant. <laughs> but uh, I didn't know him at all. Uh, I, I knew of him. And Dave played me this track and I said, oh, this is fantastic. Um, he said, yeah, no, it's lovely, isn't it? I said, oh, it's just got a vibe. And then I said, oh, man, I've got to play on it. And they said, well, I don't think they need any guitar, Jacko. And I said, right, hmm. but they might do. He said, no, I don't think so. 
And I knew that weekend he was going to do some recording on it and I knew where the studio was. So um, again, with the, the sheer arrogance and enthusiasm of youth, I put my guitar and uh, amp in the back of the car and I drove to the studio and I got there and I said, look, you don't know me. I think this track's brilliant. Please let me play on it. If you don't want to use anything, that's fine. Just erase it. And they were very sweet, Peter in particular. Uh, and Peter gave me this um, ludicrous <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh, directive. He was telling me in his American drawl about, you know, what the song was about. And I want you to imagine you're trapped in a burning room and, that was how he was trying to imagine how I would play the guitar, screaming. And so I played on it and they kept it. And uh, I became really good pals with Peter to this very day and John Greaves, who co-wrote the song with him. Um, so, yeah, that's why I chose that track. now we get to the late 80s and into 1990 and your partnership with Tom Robinson and we have here what have I ever done to you and 
that must have been such a, a rewarding time artistically to work with such a great artist such as Tom. Yeah, I had an amazing... I'll tell you what happened. I, I After the deal with Stiff, that album didn't come out. And, and, and we, you know, we recorded a whole album. It was very costly. We did stuff where we flew to LA to record the horns. It was all that kind of thing. Mm. And then I signed to a label called MDM, which was Mark Dean's label, the guy that had InnerVision and, and signed Wan. But by that time, he was part of Virgin. So I, in effect, I signed to Virgin. And that album didn't come out. And I got, I got quite low, and it was 1987, I think. And I just thought, sorry, I'm just going to do stuff that I think is interesting. And that year was amazing. I did so many things in that year. I'd written some stuff on an album that had been quite successful. And my publisher, uh, this is rather like the film business, you know, they think, well, he's been a successful screenwriter, and he's been a successful mm. director of photography or whatever. Let's put them together. They're bound to be successful. So they gave me a list of potential... Uh, collaborators, one of whom was Tom Robinson. And I, I rather liked Tom Robinson. And I had a track he'd co-written with Peter Gabriel that I liked. And, and he agreed to meet me and to work uh, together. But um, he said he can't do it at the time because he was going to the Edinburgh Festival. And I was going to the Edinburgh Festival. And I met him up there and we had a chat and we got on very well. And we ended up doing a number of things. Well, I played with him. I played in his band. We did toured as a duo. Right. We did the music, all the incidental music for a TV series on Central. And his next album I, I produced and co-wrote. And that's, this is a track from that. And he's a great man, Tom, and a fantastic lyricist uh, and a very passionate and thoughtful bloke. And um, I enjoyed working with him enormously.
And now we have The Lodge, Smell of a Friend. And you mentioned Peter Blegfad earlier. Is that related to him again? Yeah, I, that was in the same year. There was 87. So I, a number of things happened that year. I got it that an old friend of mine was getting married in New York. So I went to New York to the wedding. And Peter Blegvad and John Greaves were recording an album, which was in effect a, a follow-up to an album they'd made called Q Rome, uh, which I loved. It was one of my favourite records back then. They said, oh, look, you know, come by. Maybe bring a guitar. So I said, OK. I was just going to pop by and maybe play on one thing. And then the next thing I know, I played on all of it and sang lead vocals on the title track. And we ended up, I was staying in a, Peter had this loft apartment uh, near the financial district. So we were living there and going up to this studio in Central Park throughout the summer. It was a hot, sweltering summer. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in this New York-based band called The Lodge. You know. But was that something that you, you also co-wrote? No, I didn't write anything on that. Right. I think I played a bit of flute because then we finished, I think we finished part of that in England. So I did a bit of flute, sang lead vocals on one track and then did all the lead guitars, all the main guitar parts I did. And it was great because the music's wacky and the lyrics are insane, but they're brilliant. And then having got involved with that label, I, I told them about this idea I had for a, uh, an all acoustic group because I'd recorded a track on my previously unreleased album uh, using a double bass player called Danny Thompson, who I was, again, I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. You know? uh, and Gavin, who um, is, is one of the, is the main drummer in Crimson at the moment, and uh, somebody I've known for a long time, and an Indian percussionist called Pandit Dinesh. And, and they said, oh, that sounds interesting. And they gave me a, they gave me a deal and a budget. And, I mean, it wouldn't happen now, but uh, back then. So I did loads that year. Um, I was doing the Edinburgh Festival and I, I, I also worked on Sam Brown's album, Stop, that wow. year. So it was a year full of really interesting musical projects and, uh, and diverse too, you know, it was great fun.
That creativity continued into the 1990s in, in all different forms. And now we have uh, Norbert's story and just such a, an incredible piece that he did for Radio Free, which was uh, very personal. Yeah, well, that came about, funnily, that did come about through knowing Tom. Right. Tom, towards the end of that uh, creative relationship, had started working in broadcasting. And he'd been doing some various bits and pieces for Radio 4. And he talked to um, one of the producers there, a guy called Simon Elms, and he was telling him about me. And he told this very specific story about how I discovered my real mother. So Tom, in his studio, recorded me just telling this story and gave the tape to um, Simon Elms. And Simon was very taken with it. it. And it was broadcast as part of a series called Tuesday Lives, where a person tells a story from their life, supposedly extraordinary story from their life. And then he, he was very taken with it. So the, the producer said, um, I'd like to meet Jacko. So I, I had lunch with him and we talked about all sorts of stuff. And originally we were going to do a Radio 4 uh, show where I told uh, stories or anecdotes related to the music business. One of which was about how I'd spent uh, also 1987, funny enough, I'd spent a day at a studio in Los Angeles called Westlake Audio with uh, Michael Jackson. They were, recording, they were recording the Bad album and I, I'd worked with the horn section who played on all of the Quincy Jones hits and I was staying with the sax player because we became really good pals. And he invited me down to the studio on the Saturday because he said the rest of the guys would be there, they'd love to see you. And I had no idea who would, who would be there. And it was only when I got there, I found out that it was, uh, it was uh, the horn session for, for that album, Bad. So I had, I had this long, drawn-out, kind of shaggy dog story about being with Michael Jackson all day. So the series we were going to do uh, was a series of anecdotes. Uh, the title of the series was going to be Michael Jackson Likes My Shoes, because that was the, that was the conversation point uh, with, with me and him. And then, I don't know what happened, I think... I found out some more stuff about my mother. 
and then the next thing I know, Simon's suggesting, well, actually, we could do an extraordinary piece because you've got such a, an amazing story to tell because my adoptive father's story is amazing. His war story is, 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 an, is an extraordinary, unusual and mad thing in itself. My adoptive French mother also had a, an equally melodramatic tale to tell. So we came up with this idea of doing a piece of music using speech as part of the composition, but with a narrative that told this story about me and them. And we went to Ireland to meet all these people that knew my, my birth mother. Uh, and then we ended up with this piece called The Road to Balinar, which was nominated for awards and has the best reviews of anything I'll ever, ever have, I guess. Um, but it was on BBC Radio 3, so about 15 people heard it. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, this year, I was going to part of this busy year that's now been uh, kiboshed by the, the virus, as indeed ha it has for many. One of the things I was going to do was finishing the solo album, then I was going to work on a one-man show based on The Road to Balinar, which I was going to do at the Edinburgh Festival. So I had a venue and everything. And uh, there's a guy called Richard Turner who does uh, visuals for really big bands, um, he's worked with uh, Roger Waters for the past 15 years, so does all the big visual stuff. And he really loved that piece and said, I'm sure we could do a live thing with, with video, with stills, with, with other audio. And, um, and it was going to be directed by Michael Attenborough, uh, who uh, I, I, I've known for a long time. But Michael was um, artistic director at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And of course, his dad is, uh, was, was Sir Richard. And his uncle is David. So that was going to be, uh, I was going to do that piece again. I just kind of uh, was going to, re I was started re-recording it when the virus kicked in and everything got cancelled. Well, uh, you, you mentioned 15 people hearing it this time and, and hopefully the, the live show we heard next year, but let's hear it now. In Silesia, there was on the German border, in Poland, you know. In that day, Ruda was what they call my dad. Mining villas here. Because it's a house, you know, for the uh, 12 people were, you know, living there. We had two bedrooms, no bathroom, you know. It was a big family, you know. Most mother was interested, you know, but the father, I don't think so, no. It was only one or two, yeah, you know. You could see the affection, but, uh, no. I was five years old. I saw the rifles, you know, behind them on the corner of the, of the wall. I could see them from the window. I was in, at home in, in, the, in, the, in the bedroom. I still see that, you know. I must have been scared, I think. Still in my mind, you see. I must have been scared. I must have been scared, I think. My mother came there half time, but she had a big, big family. My father was starting drinking, you know. He was always drinking, you know. Or when he was drunk, he was shouting at mum, or drunk, you know. Shouting against, against the boats. They pigs, pigs, they all pigs, you know. Oh, he was shouting, you know. My father was more German, yeah? He 
went out on the road, you know, and shouted, you know, against the poles. My mother get the rough time. But when he was drunk, he hit her sometimes. He hit her sometimes. The German camera was about German soldiers, German police. You get something from the government. Obviously, yeah, what class you are, you know. Yeah, what class you are. You had the numbers. You had number one, number two, number three, or number four. On radio, it was a you. It was a you. It was a you. It was a you. Oh yeah, I remember that. They've been collecting, you know, from every village, from every town. That disappeared. That disappeared. I think they came at night. If you don't open, just break in, you know. Taking my way on the a lot. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I know one boy, she hung in Ruda. Because he was anti-Hitler. Anti when he hung in. On the marketplace. When I saw that, that was terrible, yeah. The young man, you know, Achterik was his name. You know what he said about Be careful what you're talking about, you know. You couldn't speak your mind out, you see. You couldn't speak your mind out. And we've got to the, the final track of this, um, the first part of uh, your podcast, Jacko. And we go to uh, a few years you spent with Level 42 and one of the few tracks that you recorded with them as uh, years go. How, how did you get involved with uh, Mark King and Level 42? Well, now, you see, there's a story. Uh, hmm. When the album with Tom Robinson came out, again, it got fantastic reviews, that album. But it was on a small label. So when it came to PR and promotion, there wasn't a great deal happening. And then one day I got a phone call from the PR guy saying, I've got you a live TV show. I said, great. And then he told me what it was. And I said, I'm not doing that. And it was a show that was, uh, you're probably too young, but there was a show in the 80s uh, that was on on a Friday night after the pubs had closed called the James Whale Radio Show. Oh, yeah, yeah, James Whale, yeah. Remember? I mean, it was, um, did you ever see The Word? Yeah, yeah. Well, so it was like the word, but without any budget whatsoever. So <laughs> it was like car crash TV, but really, really cheap. And I thought, this is a nonsense. I'm not doing this. So I said, I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. And then Tom rang up and said, look, will you please do this to, uh, as a favor? And I said, oh, all right. And I, I vividly remember packing the car up and driving to Leeds, which is where it was shot, and resenting every mile. And, and we got there and it was chaotic. And I set up all my stuff and I had, I programmed up a, a backing track. Um, in fact, uh, I think the track you're going to play is the track we actually played live. And I sing and I do a guitar solo. And when it was done, I thought I was absolutely right not to say not to do this. It, this has been a nightmare. And I packed up my gear and I drove home instead of staying over. I thought, sorry, I'm just going. Cut to about four or five months later, I'm at home. I, I remember this vividly too. It was, a, it was a cold February morning and I heard the post go and there was a brown envelope and I opened it and it was from the Inland Revenue and it told me that I had been referred to the um, bankruptcy division. 
And I thought, oh no, this is a nightmare. I'm going to lose the house, the studio, everything. I remember the milk was off and I thought, oh, brilliant. So I drove up the road to get some milk and I came back. And when I came back, the light on my answer phone was flashing and I played back this message and it was uh, this guy saying, hello, Jacko, my name's Mark King from Level 42. I need you to call me as soon as possible. It's quite important. I thought, what? So I dialed this number and I thought it was a joke, you know, and he answered the phone and he said, yeah, I don't know if you know about us. Um, you know, we lost our guitarist. He died. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I knew Al Murphy slightly. And um, he said, well, you know, we've done a brand new album and, um, and then we fell out with our label, but we've got a new label and we're going to release that in the summer and then we're going to go on tour and we need a new permanent guitar player who's prepared to commit for the, a minimum of two years. And I said, do you want me to audition? He said, no, the job's yours. Do you want it? And I went, what? Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, instantly I kind of managed to avoid bankruptcy and, uh, and it just, it took me up to this whole other level. Months later, when we were doing all these endless uh, TV shows around Europe promoting the first single, we were in a bar, I think, and I said to Mark, I said, Mark, how on earth did I get this job? Every guitarist in the country wanted this job <laughs> because it, this is one of those rare jobs where it's a band that's commercially very successful but also has a reputation of being players, you know. And he said, well, <clears throat> he said, a number of people have recommended you. He said, Nick Kershaw recommended you, uh, an engineer producer called Julian Mendelssohn, who Mark had worked with, and I'd worked with extensively, recommended you. And he said, and Mike Lindup saw you play at this Danny Thompson event. And he said, so your name was in the back of my head. He said, and the next thing that happened was he said, I came in from the pub one evening and I turned on the TV. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? I'd so... I came so close to not doing that. And it just shows you, you have no idea, you know, that crappy little gig in Newcastle that you don't want to do because only 200 people are going to turn up. You just never know who might be in the audience and what might happen. You know? Luck plays such, a, and, and those, the fortuitousness of timing plays such an important part. So that's, that's how I got the job. What a great way to end the uh, first podcast in, in playing that track. And, uh, you know, you mentioned sliding doors, earlier and it does seem to be a bit one of those moments where just that little twist of fate absolutely yeah
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.